from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Thank you, Air Commodore, and thank you to the trustees for inviting me to speak. It's a feel a great honour. And I'm delighted to be here, not just because it's a very auspicious year, but because in the preparation of this lecture, I've discovered some remarkable people, spoken to remarkable people, and learnt a lot about some truly amazing aviators and physicians uh, from the past and the present. I'm also delighted that Air Vice Marshal Stewart's son, Callum, and grandson are here tonight. And uh, I should say thank you to uh, Callum for all of the support he's given me in the last couple of weeks, the background and context and perspective. It's been, it's been absolutely fascinating. Um, I think this lecture could have really been subtitled Necessity is the Mother of Invention, or, or even I Hope This Works. <laughs> and I just... Um, I suppose, I, suppose you've, I suppose it's fair to say you've heard the old saying that an expert is someone that comes from somewhere else and brings slides. Well, I've taken that a step further. I've come from somewhere else and I've bought other people's slides. And the reason I say that is that I've been provided with a massive amount of help and support and information. In fact, far too much from so many people, it's impossible to present it all tonight. So there will be people in this room tonight who have sent me information and images and all sorts of stuff, and I really hope that I've been able to include your material. If not, I apologise. Um, I'm sure it'll be, I'll be able to present it at some stage in the future. Just a few declarations. Um, as has been said, I'm the Chief Medical Officer for the International Medical Group, which is an American company, uh, an insurer, but with a large assistance in aviation medicine capability based in Indianapolis in London and we've got um, premises in in Hong Kong and Singapore as well. Um, I was the course director until the back end of last year for the University of Otago's uh, aeromedical retrieval papers so I I tell you that just for some some context and I'm currently the chair of uh, a small body called the Assistant Services Medical Directors Forum which sort of does what it says on the tin. We are a group of the medical directors of the largest UK assistance operations. A bit bit more about them later. I want to just start by reiterating some facts about Air Vice Marshal Stewart. Um, During the Second World War, he he did seminal work in the um, physiological effects of acceleration, uh, G-lock, uh, extreme heat and cold, decompression, and the design of protective uh, G-protection systems. Um, as has already been said, he was involved in a tragic accident where a fortress um, uh, disintegrated in extreme weather and where other members of the crew were lost. And um, it appears that that uh, had an effect and, and gave him direction in the... Um, in the, in the design of escape systems, particularly ejector seats, uh, and, and worked with uh, Martin Bakers from very early time to develop those early ejection systems. Um, indeed, um, uh, Baker had died the previous year, the year previous to this accident, and so 
both parties in that initial, initial collaboration had very good reason for looking uh, for uh, advanced ways of getting out of aircraft in, in distress. Um, I, it would be, I'm, I'm told he was, I've, one of these people I would love to have met, I'm told he was a very modest man. Some of you may have, um, have, have been lucky enough to work with him. Uh, and I can't go through all of the things that he achieved in his career. But one thing I will point out is he, he managed to secure 350,000 uh, pounds of funding, 3.2 million in today's money, uh, to, for the building of the IEM centrifuge at Farnborough. And he was appointed commander of the RAF Institute of Aviation Medicine in May 58 uh, at a period of, of, of growth. Um, I just really wanted to show these photographs. Uh, one of the things that the themes throughout the development of aeromedical transfer, transport and aviation medicine and aviation itself, I think is summed up by this picture on the, on, on, on the right here. This is, um, and you can just see the... the not terribly good pictures here, but I think you can get the gist of this. This is a system for recovering personnel, um, special operations personnel uh, from remote locations. It's based on a system designed originally in America for collecting mail bags. And the general principle is the aircraft tows a 100-foot steel hawser with a grappling hook on the bottom, flies at about 100, 100, uh, just below 100 feet, and at a speed of about 90 knots. And on the ground, there are two vertical poles with a rope slung between them, and they come down into a harness, and the harness is just worn like a parachute, a parachute harness, essentially on a tether. And then the aircraft flies, and the grappling hook uh, catches the horizontal line and essentially picks up the person attached to the end of that. I think what's great about that photograph is the look on his face. Here is a man who is about to do something incredibly dangerous very early on before it's been proven. Uh, and in fact, the first time they did this in America, they did this with a sheep. And the sheep didn't fare very well because the harness moved and strangled the sheep. Um, I just think that expression sums up the expression of quite a lot of people who have been involved in the, this arena for all these years, which is almost dogged determination, despite the risks. And he was the second person to do it on this day, and he uh, apparently came down considerably less shaken than the first person because of adopting a, more, a slightly more rigid body position as he was scooped up. But I think that's a fantastic slide, and I think that probably uh, demonstrates the spirit with which he conducted his research in all sorts of other areas. I want to take you back, though, to the Siege of Paris. Traditionally so, I think. Siege of Paris, September 1870, multiple balloon flights made from the city. Um, I think I know the name of that balloon even. We'll try and find it. Um, apologies. Yes, it's called the Neptune, this balloon. And, oops, sorry about that. It's called the Neptune, and lots of balloons were launched uh, from, uh, during the Siege of Paris. Lots of people were carried out of the city, and it would have been absolutely wonderful if casualties had been evacuated by balloon. It just would have felt right. The truth is that it's a pervasive, romantic notion that's widely discussed, but there doesn't seem to be any firm evidence that that actually happened. Uh, although there's a lot of good documentation about who was taken out of the city. So it's almost certainly a myth, albeit a rather harmless one, and there are some good papers describing the lack of evidence. This chap, though, 
Uh, I really didn't know a lot about this chap. Uh, to, my, to my shame, I didn't. Wonderful chap, Franklin Covey, um, Cody. Uh, he was born in Davenport, Iowa, Iowa in 1867 and trained as a cowboy. Um, and he was a popular Wild West show performer. Uh, he claimed to be the son of Buffalo Bill Cody, but he wasn't. He'd actually changed his name from Cowdery to, to, to Cody. And he um, came to England in, 19, in 1890. Um, and he started experimenting with kites. And so successful were his experiments with kites that the British Army recruited him and the kites were used to um, carry aloft spotters, artillery spotters. And they were widely used. Indeed, he also used to take people on, on rides on these kites to reasonable altitudes. Um, and then he started experimenting with aircraft. And this is the first powered plane. So, and he was responsible for the first heavier-than-air um, um, powered flight in the UK. Um, it, it took place on Farnborough Common on the 16th of October 1908. Um, he flew 1,390 feet in 27 seconds and crash-landed and walked away from the wreckage and used the components of the wreckage to build the second aircraft. Uh, and this is a memorial at Farnborough to him. But towards the end of his career, he built this. This is his last aircraft. Um, it was designed originally as a float plane, and it was designed to compete in the round the UK Daily Mail um, air race. Um, they experimented with putting floats on the front here instead of this skid, uh, and it flew, but it never flew with the floats. Um, and it did compete, and I think he came third. Um, and then the aircraft was um, converted into an air ambulance. I think this is a wonderful photograph. Um, this chap sitting on the leading edge of the aircraft, actually look at, looking at him now, on the small photograph he didn't look very nervous, but actually on the big screen I think he looks slightly more nervous, as well you might. He does just appear to be sitting on the front of the leading edge, and, um, and he also seems to be responsible for holding this on the aircraft, uh, which is all the medical equipment that, the, uh, that this aircraft carried. Um, but surprisingly advanced in its concept, really, uh, could carry a patient and an attendant and uh, a lot of surgical uh, equipment that were thought to be ne necessary. Essentially, this was taking expertise to the patient. Um, it's rather lovely. Now, first, military evacuation by air, air um, uh, in the Sinai Desert. A trooper who was shot in the ankle um, and uh, by a Bedouin bullet and uh, the preparations were made to send him on a, to the railhead on a camel, which is a journey which would have taken two or three days. However, his medical officer persuaded the pilot of a passing biplane to put him into that aircraft, and he carried him as a sitting casualty in the observer's seat, and the journey to the railhead took 45 minutes instead of two to three days, and he survived that episode. patient was uh, Lance Corp. Corporal McGregor, uh, there doesn't seem to be any information about who the medical officer was. I'm skipping large chunks of this, I'm afraid, and I wish I could talk about helicopter, you know, rotary development, but they're just not time. But by the end of the Second World War, larger airframes were being used. Uh, DC-3s, you can see the large loading cargo doors, the uh, three-stretcher arrangement here, um, seen later in NATO uh, litters. 
um, and much more sophistication. Um, Captain Edmund Fresson is, um, is notable because, uh, well, for, for, a whole, for a whole variety of reasons. Uh, firstly, uh, because he, was, uh, he flew bravely around the UK on, on uh, pleasure flights, taking people into tiny unprepared airfields. Um, and this is another thing about the, the development of the specialty. A lot of things seem to happen by chance. Um, he landed in a field next to the Balfour Hospital and just bumped into Orkney's surgeon. And they began to get talking about how they could use this aeroplane. And two years later, the first formal air ambulance service uh, was started, as um, really as a secondary effect from starting a commercial airline, uh, Highland Air- Airways. Um, and um, uh, by the end, uh, two years later, he was flying the de Havilland DH-84 Dragon. Uh, and it is said that lots of patients were transferred in this aircraft from the islands, although there doesn't seem to be any photographic evidence of that, although it's, uh, it's certainly, uh, almost certainly true. So, swinging forward to the present day, I just want to talk a little bit about uh, modern aeromedical retrieval. Um, some of this may be self-evident. So, the reasons we transfer patients by air now are, in the, in the civilian world, are multiple. Firstly, uh, our primary retrievals um, to emergency medical care off the streets, using machines, uh, hel- usually helicopters, um, to evacuate patients where, they, where patients are requiring of a higher level of care. Um, and if we predict deterioration would outstrip the local ability of the teams to look after the patient, particularly internationally. Um, Sometimes we move patients electively to receive planned treatment in regional centres of excellence. So when we think somebody is uh, about to undertake surgery in a poorly resourced location. And then lastly, to repatriate patients home. Quick uh, revision of the classification system that we used. Uh, Primary retrievals from the point of um, accident or illness to a receiving hospital and to a primary hospital. Secondary transfer from that local receiving hospital to a local hospital with a higher level of care, uh, usually in country. Tertiary uh, transfer from that hospital to a regional centre of excellence, uh, often out of country. And quaternary transfers, long-haul transfer or repatriation. Um, Just some pictures, really. Just gratuitous pictures of nice aircraft. (laughs) Um, Fixed-wing transfers, um, really, what, really what my company is, is mostly inv- involved in is the transfer of patient on fixed-wing aircraft. The archetypal aircraft for transferring patients is, whoops, sorry, is the Lear 35, uh, originally Lear, Lear, 30, Lear 45, originally Lear 35 series. There are still a lot of 35s and 45s in service around the world, particularly in the United States. Um, but this is an ageing fleet, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But the vast majority of transfers inside the United States still are undertaken on the Lear 45 series. Very small, uh, fast, flies high, uh, and, and economic to fly, uh, but very cramped inside, very little space. This is a very good example. This is a DRF uh, uh, German Air Ambulance's um, Lear 45. Um, but notably, no toilet facilities on this aircraft, very little room to, m- to move around, although well equipped with piped oxygen and services. 
Then there are mid-sized general aviation air aircraft. Um, this is a Challenger. Uh, this is a very poor photograph of the inside of the Challenger, but we'll talk a little bit more about the Challenger later on. If you're going to transfer patients, you're, it's beholden upon you to transfer them somewhere that can provide a whole range of services, um, and not just the nearest place. And there are lots of uh, pressures uh, on you, usually, to transfer as quickly as possible. Um, what we tend to do is transfer to tertiary referral centres that are multidisciplinary and really can provide all of the required um, um, medical services, particularly when there's a diagnosis, um, there's a, there's a um, doubt about the diagnosis. The last thing you want to do is move a patient that requires complex neurosurgery to a centre that can't provide it. Um, Another thing that's changed considerably is, is our use of commercial aircraft. Over the years, we went through a phase of moving very high-dependency patients on commercial aircraft. Uh, in fact, there was, a, um, there was a trend towards moving ventilated and, and actually quite unstable patients on commercial flights, on stretchers. Um, and that's been reversed largely now. But we still move a fair number of patients on stretchers in the back of aircraft where it's allowed, certainly seated in business class. And the, um, the fact that we now have oxygen concentrators makes us much more independent of aircraft oxygen systems. And, and, uh, and with the increasing capacity of concentrators to produce high-flow oxygen, we tend to be doing moving patients that are more oxygen-dependent than we would before. But, but, the, but there are very few services now that will allow us to... Commercial operators will allow us to move ventilated patients on their aircraft, except in very special circumstances. Uh, Air France will still allow us to move patients ventilated out of the Caribbean, out of Martinique, um, because they do it all the time and they use it as a bridge into Paris for further treatment. Uh, but there aren't many... Um, and, and occasionally you'll be able to move uh, chronically ventilated patients, so, for example, patients with Guillain-Barre um, and, 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 and difficulty weaning on commercial flights, but it's rare. If you're going to move patients on commercial flights, you need to be supported by this sort of infrastructure. Uh, so an ability to track all the kit. Um, the, uh, they have to be light, portable equipment. This is defibrillator, uh, suction equipment. Um, and all of our kit goes into ruggedized boxes. Uh, all of it's trackable worldwide so that it's all barcoded. So if we have product recalls or, or, uh, or, or, or warning notices about drugs, we know where all of our drugs are at any one time so we can contact our transfer teams. And that's a relatively new departure, actually. Int intensive care aboard commercial flights, as I say, has actually got quite a long history. And there was a period as ventilators were getting smaller, uh, the Breas LTV-1000 was traditionally used by both the military and on commercial flights. Um, but essentially now, um, we try and move patients who are ventilated in, in, on specific intensive care cots. This is um, a very early intensive care module uh, that was designed by uh, this chap, Horacio Vivaldi, uh, in conjunction with the engineers at uh, Aerolineas Argentinas um, in 1995. The reason this happened was that there was a young man from a fairly deprived area who uh, went with a rugby team on a charity rugby tour of New Zealand and broke his neck and ended up with a C23 transection uh, which rendered him paraplegic. He was, they did not have the financial resources to get him back in any other way. And so a group from Medplane, which is an air ambulance company run by Horatio, 
and, uh, and, and the airline got together and they designed this. This was their first drawing, and uh, this is the final product installed on the 747, the final, the final uh, services module. Um, they successfully completed the transfer in the 747, and this chap, uh, the patient, went on to become a journalist, and as far as I know, he's still working in Buenos Aires. It was really the precursor, or one of the precursors for this, which is the Lufthansa patient transportation compartment. It's a module which is, you can just see here, a pretty innocuous thing that sits in the economy section of a wide-bodied aircraft um, and has a complete intensive care capability in the middle of it. The, it's been running successfully. Lufthansa is still running it. There are some limitations of its use. Uh, um, the, the biggest limitation is it has to be put on in Frankfurt or Munich and taken off in Frankfurt or, or Munich. So you can have it outbound to a location, but you have to often connect with it with an air ambulance at the other end. So it means there are, there's multiple steps of handling the patient on a small, onto a, to connect at the hub, often off a small aircraft, and then back again for the final sector. Um, the good thing about this unit is you can do very long distances in a single hop. So if you've got a multiple injured patient, say a spinal injured patient, where multiple descents and ascents and takeoffs and landings might be a problem with an unstable spinal injury, you can at least put the, a patient uh, into this compartment and you have a single ascent to altitude and a single descent. The slight problem with this is that it does look a little bit like a toilet. And I was moving a patient out of South America on this, and we'd just got into the cruise, and I thought, probably a good time to go to, to make my excuses and sneak out for a coffee. And I opened the door, and there's a line of people standing, waiting. <laughs> and this woman said to me, young man, you've been in there almost an hour. Um, so I made my uh, excuses, and she was quite surprised to see there was an intensive care unit. <laughs> and the other thing that's slightly un unnerving about it is the sensory deprivation you get in it. Because if you sit in there too long, you, do, you can go a little stir-crazy. Have any of you been in one of these? Maybe not? You have? Yes. It's quite unnerving, isn't it, after a while? You, you tend to forget where you are. But very useful in some circumstances. The, the patient we brought back from uh, Sao Paulo was, a, was a, a, a pancytopenic patient who was actually very well, but we, we worried that he would deteriorate and become septic and, and uh, become cardiovascularly unstable um, during the flight. Gosh, I'm going to have to speed up. Um, another significant development in the patient of transfers is, is this service from uh, Medair. Founded in 1986 by a nurse called Joan Garrett, uh, she had experienced the death of a local child due to lack of good medical advice, uh, fairly remote from where, where she lived in um, uh, Phoenix. She uh, partnered with a doctor at the uh, wrong one again. She partnered with a doctor at the Banner Good Samaritan Hospital, and they started by doing training and providing medical equipment to, into the countryside. And very quickly, they developed a service um, using the physicians in that hospital to provide remote advice by phone, and then they moved into providing remote advice to airlines. It's revolutionised the uh, provision of medical care on aircraft, I have to say. They serve a, service about 130 airlines now. Last year they did 53,000 uh, response. They provided 53,000 responses to in-flight medical events, and they did 49,000 pre-flight screenings on the ground. I think that's allowed airlines to have 
more, com more comfort, even though they, their uh, crew are trained to cope with medical emergencies. It means that when complex decisions about diversion have to be made or a physician steps up and wants to treat the patient, then there's a second opinion on the ground. does two things. Firstly, it's very reassuring for a physician that, that pre presents on a plane to talk to a colleague you might expect that they'd be a bit fed up with volunteering their help and then having to ring Medair and have their actions endorsed. I've been in the situation several times. It's actually very reassuring to talk to another physician on the ground who can give you a perspective on where that aircraft is and what the next step may be. Um, so this is a very... And, and the, the additionally, it's allowed airlines to have the comfort if they're going to move patients with escorts, so sick, pa sick passengers, then there's this resource that they can call down upon if they need to. Um, geography is a big influence on aeromedical retrieval. Um, this is uh, Andy Timpany's uh, journey down to the Falkland Islands, and I picked the Falkland Islands example uh, because it is very, very remote. 8,000 miles from Bryce Norton via Ascension, all of that pretty much over water, very few places to go if your patient deteriorates, so really you have to be completely self-reliant. And one of the things I think in aeromedical retrieval in the civilian world, well, in, in both the civilian and the military world, is what we forget is its remoteness that kills patients. Almost always it's remoteness. It's the fact that you know what to do, but you can't actually do it on that aircraft. Um, and this one, long journey down. Uh, I suspect, Andy, although I didn't check, that you're using the helicopter here because of the risks of travelling across the island after the conflict? Yeah, or anyway? Just make it smooth yeah. So you've got a, a helicopter transfer and then a, a, long, a long haul back on the TriStar. Um, Funnily enough, um, we had one of these. Uh, this was a chap who was attacked by a shark on Ascension. And uh, we got a phone call in the middle of the afternoon saying, uh, came through uh, to my phone, and the conversation went a little bit like this. We're on Ascension Island. There isn't much medicine going on here. And we got a chap that's been bitten by a shark. Could you help? So we started to help, and the cogs were turning. And I thought, ah, oh, Ascension. South Atlantic Air Bridge, fantastic, because I think there's going to be a really slick way of getting this chat back. So um, I think I rang Ian, and I said, Ian, I would really like to, if, if you could help us with your routine flight back. And he said, love to. Uh, and that's where the ascension is, actually. That's an, that gives perspective. Uh, and he told us that this had happened. They'd love to help. But they couldn't because they were rerouting all of the Airbridge flights via Cape Verde. Thank you. Cape Verde. Thank you. Good. Um, and half of this runway um, was unserviceable. So then we, had, uh, then we had a massive logistical challenge. And we ran two parallel operations. One uh, deploying an aircraft out of Johannesburg, so flying west and the other one potentially deploying an aircraft out of Florida flying east. And we ran them both simultaneously for about six hours in the preparatory stages. And often you have to do this. And the end result was that the westbound flying aircraft would have been at least eight or ten hours slower than the eastbound flying aircraft because of overfly permissions in West Africa. So we cancelled that option and we flew an aircraft in from uh, America, from Florida. But it was a very, very tight trip. And I 
Don't know the details, but I suspect they probably only had a single shot at the runway. But don't quote me. Anyway, um, the aircraft, the pilot, they did get back. The patient did extremely well, and I'm told he's back at work. Um, another environment that really dictates the sort of airframes that you use is Africa, of course. Lots of unprepared strips, um, uh, you know, uh, on, on either very dry or very wet um, uh, landing areas. And this is um, AMREF's fleet at the moment. And as you can see, the fleet has been chosen uh, really to satisfy the requirements for short takeoff landings and rough fields, but also then from fixed runways, from asphalt runways, to be able to take the patient um, onward to Johannesburg um, for the long haul sectors. So that, really their environment has completely dictated what airframes they've used. Highly infectious disease has shaped our service as well around the world. Um, clearly the Ebola outbreak uh, was um, seminal in increasing the capability globally for moving these patients. I'd love to speak... I'd, Ian presents on this and others. I'd love to speak more about this, but essentially... Uh, uh, on the uh, bank holiday weekend 2014, the HI team was assembled and deployed and moved the first um, uh, victim of the uh, British victim of the Ebola virus um, uh, back into the UK. And in 14 and 15, um, the deployable air isolated team transferred five patients with um, viral hemorrhagic fever and, uh, and five with um, exposure. Now, interestingly, I don't know whether I put this on the next slide. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That spoiled the surprise. Um, this, this operation uh, highlighted a lot of things. The first thing it showed us in the civilian world was, for years, civilian aeromedical companies and civilian assistance companies had claimed they could move Ebola patients. Lots of people claimed they could do it. And we as an organisation, in the role I was in at the time, we were tasked with looking after the Chase OT employees that were deployed down into Sierra Leone. So from a civilian perspective, our company was responsible for them. And so we had this dichotomy between a military response and a governmental response, a shared asset, and the, and the civilian response, which was really a commercial operation. And of course, we went into this uh, thinking that there would be a lot of commercial op options for moving patients who'd been exposed. There weren't. In fact, there was only one company in Europe that moved uh, exposed patients, and nobody moved uh, symptomatic Ebola patients apart from the military. So we quickly learned, if we have a patient like this, to, 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 to ask the military for help. Um, that's the first thing. Um, I'm going to show you this. Second thing is, of course there's considerably more capability to move these patients now. Uh, uh, the Air Commodore on board the A400M, which I understand is now being certified and cleared for Kazavak in Kazavak role. Um, I've not actually been on the back of one of these things, so if anyone wants to invite me to see it, that would be great. Um, and this is the American uh, transportable isolation system, uh, which is a lot larger uh, it has an, uh, an anti-room at one end, and it has multiple compartments for each patient. Um, and it's palletized, as you can see here. Uh, it, it is cleared to go on the C-17 and the Hercules. Um, I don't know whether, the, uh, whether it's ever gone on any of, of the RAF aircraft, but presumably it, it could, if, if necessary. Um, 
And then, just by chance, about a year after uh, the Ebola crisis resolved, we got a phone call from a missionary who had um, symptoms. And it sounded very much to us like he had Lassa fever. And we did find a commercial provider to bring him into Munich. And he did come into Munich, finally and grudgingly, he came into Munich. Um, but he delayed quite a long time because he didn't believe he had Lassa fever. In fact, he kept telling us that Lassa fever hadn't been seen in the village that they were in in Togo for years. He did come into Munich and sadly he did have Lassa fever and he died. Um, not only did he die undiagnosed, but the mortuary technician uh, that looked after him after he died contracted Lassa fever. So it's interesting because we raised red flags over this uh, all the way through the transfer pathway. Um, and yet there really wasn't, however hard we tried, there was a feeling this probably wasn't Lassa fever. But it turned out to be Lassa fever. Three weeks later, we had another patient who presented in exactly the same way. And on that occasion, we were firm and we talked to the State Department because it was an American patient. And State Department stepped in and Phoenix Air came down with the CDC crew from Emory and they recovered the patient and took him back to Emory. And he did very well, actually. And he did well because we did it quickly. Um, this paper has been accepted for publication in January and I commend it to you. It's, uh, it's available on the web as a pre-release paper a fascinating read, um, and I'll, I'll, put it, I'll distribute that later. Um, military aeromedical capability, there is no question that over the years the military have uh, continually evolved the techniques to move seriously injured patients, and that's had a, a hugely positive effect on the way we manage trauma patients in the civilian world and also how we move patients as well. Um, during the, the, the peak period, the RAF moved 5,200 patients a year from around the world into the UK and 1,800 alone a year from Afghanistan, including 300 critical care patients. That is a huge number of patients uh, and, and orders of magnitude more than the commercial operations uh, move into the UK. Um, I've, I'm mindful of the time and I'm going to try and go through the rest of these slides quickly. But I wanted to tell you about this because there'll be people in this room here today who helped us with this over the last three days. So this is hot off the presses. And I, I, this is a patient who, um, who developed uh, crashing heart failure and was uh, established on ECMO um, in a Spanish hospital. Um, and I'm be careful to protect the patient's identity here, but I have been given permission to talk about this by the Brompton team. Um, and I think it just gives you a flavour of um, the collaboration that, uh, that is engendered when we talk about moving patients. Uh, I, was given a, uh, I was called by um, John Warwick, um, uh, who, um, who's an intensivist and, and, and a medical director for an air ambulance company. And he said, uh, we, were trying, we are trying to arrange to move a patient on ECMO. The Brompton ECMO team is standing by and our aircraft has just been tasked to do something else and we've lost the challenger that we were going to put the ECMO team in. Uh, ECMO team, five, uh, two physicians, um, two nurses, and a, and a perfusionist um, were waiting to leave, and we were exploring every option we possibly could. And so um, I uh, took the unusual but not unprecedented step of ringing 
uh, my military colleagues, and saying, we have a young man uh, in his 30s uh, who is on ECMO and really needs to come back to the Brompton. And I have to say, I had an over, oh, this is over the weekend as well, an overwhelmingly positive response. It's rare for uh, the military to move non-entitled patients, but again, not unheard of. And uh, the capability to do this is very limited in the civilian world. Um, and so we, we reached out to, them, to, the, to the RAF. And within the day, it had already been escalated uh, within the RAF and, and, and within the ministry uh, with a view to trying to provide an airframe to take the Brompton team out. Um, simultaneously, though, uh, the challenger came back online. Uh, and another and two other air ambulance companies, uh, competitors of this company, had volunteered their volunteered to, to their aircraft. So we suddenly had a plethora of aircraft. So this is the team outbound on Sunday. Uh, as I say, two consultants, uh, two nurses, and a perfusionist, and the ECMO equipment. Um, and this is what the aircraft looked like uh, as they set the aircraft out up on the outbound. Now. Um, people often say that the, you need, that the ECMO machines are smaller than the intra-aortic balloon pump machines, and it's true. Uh, most new modern ECMO machines are very, very small. Uh, in fact, there it is, there. Whoops, damn. Uh, there, there it is there. But the additional equipment that you need to support the patient on ECMO is, 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 is bulky. And so um, one of the tasks of the team on the outbound is to set the aircraft up, and this is the aircraft ready to receive the patient, uh, this is the patient uh, on the ECMO circuit in the hospital some two hours after the team uh, arrived, and that's the, uh, that's the ECMO machine itself, which is really quite light and, and portable. This is back at the aircraft on the inbound flight. You can just see the cannulation tubes here, the ECMO machines being carried here, monitoring's on the end of the stretcher. And this is loading the Challenger. You can actually see, I mean, even with a Challenger, the door is a struggle to get these patients through, through the door. And remember, these are arterial and venous cannulas that are running in here. You really don't want to detach those. And this is arrival back into the UK. I'm pleased to say this patient is doing well. And uh, it's, it was just heartening to see all the collaboration that occurred. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about terrorist incidents because uh, I was going to talk about the Bali bombing and the Australian team that deployed, but I just don't think I've got time. Um, one of the biggest changes in the civilian world is our adoption of governance, uh, crew resource management, um, audit, um, and all of those have been adopted really from uh, both the military and, and, and the worlds of aviation. Um, I'm going to talk a bit about CAMS here. Um, it's uh, an accrediting organisation in the States. In the early 1980s, there were no published standards uh, specific to air medical transfer in the civilian sector. And um, the, this organisation started in 1990, referencing a range of guidelines and recommendations that had already been published, and the, they were amalg amalgamated together into the first accreditation standards document published in 1991. And it was really a timely, timely development. In '78, there were only 10 hospital-based helicopter services in America. By 1990, there were approximately 200 by 2018, there are over 1,000 helicopters operating in the U.S. 
and um, Kames uh, accredit almost 200 programs now, including 790 helicopters, 205 fixed-wing aircraft, and 470 ground ambulances. And strangely, and I really wish I knew the story behind this, one boat. I, I'm going to find out why they accredited a boat. In the UK, I wouldn't want to imply that this was had any of the gravitas of the previous organisation but the ASMDF is an association of medical directors that come together to talk about governance issues and safety on a periodic basis. Um, fleet renewal is a big, big part of, uh, of the issues faced by commercial aircraft, uh, air ambulance operators. Aging fleet, expensive renewal. But this, I just wanted to show you um, this aircraft. This is a... Um, uh, the, the new Palatus uh, aircraft, so-called um, versatile jet. It's got excellent um, short field performance. It's also capable onto unprepared strips as well. So this is the sort of aircraft that um, AMREF and other and, and RFDS, the Royal Flying Doctor Service in Australia, have just taken delivery of three of these to replace their uh, their current jets. Um, <laughs> disaster and mass casualty. This is the Swedish National Air Medivac project, uh, which converts a commercial wide-bodied aircraft, um, 737-400s usually, uh, into uh, mass casualty platforms. takes about six hours, and they exercise this with a live exercise every year. Uh, they have deployed, uh, so they were used... This is, in fact, uh, this is not the 7-3, but they've deployed with older equipment uh, during the tsunami, and they've responded to other things as well. Um, the future. Well, tilt rotors, maybe. Um, people have been talking about tilt rotors in medevac role for a long time now. So I, and I wasn't aware of the current status of them, so I rang Leonardo Helicopters, and, and they say there are several organizations around the world seriously considering these for search and rescue, including Dubai um, and, for, and for other uh, medevac roles. Advantage, of course, is it can land and pick up the patient and yet take them at high speed to the tertiary referral centre and then land like a helicopter. They expect the accreditation will be uh, FAA accredited by 2019 and IASA shortly afterwards. And Bristow and ERA have, have expressed interest and the UAE government have, have also expressed an interest for EMS role. Um, autonomous systems. Now, there are people in this room that know much more about autonomous systems than I do, but this is a uh, commercial organization called Tactical Robotics. It's an Israeli company. They are test-flying a commercial um, um, autonomous air ambulance system at the moment. Before I stop, and I know I'm mindful of the time, I want to just share with you a paradigm-changing moment that I had at a meeting the other day. And I don't know why it never really occurred to me in the past. We've used the term fit to fly for a very long time in aviation medicine and retrieval. Fit to fly. Is the patient fit to fly? Yes, they're fit to fly. I think in terms of transfer, it implies that that's a binary decision. Are you fit to fly or are you not? I think that's unhelpful. And this was raised at a, a medical director's meeting at the ITIC conference in Geneva recently. I wasn't there, sadly. But it was raised as an issue and vigorously debated. The problem with it being binary is that patients think they're simple, this is a simple decision. Patients think that a doctor on the ground that knows nothing about transfer medicine can make that decision. 
underwriters that might be fund, funding this think it's a simple decision. And patients think that because they're deemed fit to fly, that the risk is minimal. So it's a fairly unhelpful phrase. Um, is that patient fit to fly? Well, I'll let you think about it for a minute. These are some of the factors involved in when making a decision about patient transfer. You're not expected to read all through those, but this was an exercise I set some of the students in Otago to generate all of the factors in commercial transfer and civilian transfer that might play a role. There are lots of factors involved. So I think we should consider abandoning the term fit to fly when considering patient transfer. And I think we should start to um, adopt the phrase appropriate for transfer. It's part of a a chain of survival, which starts over here with early identification of red flags in the treating facility, early consultation between the treating team and Aramed physicians, a needs versus capability assessment for the patient in the hospital, an aeromedical risk analysis, and a decision as to whether that patient's appropriate for transfer, followed by early transfer. And that's when you're going to end up with the best outcomes for the patient. Lastly, I'd just like to thank all of those people and organisations for their help. Uh, they've all been hugely helpful, and I wish I could have used a, a tenth of the information that I was sent. Uh, but it's been a great pleasure uh, putting the lecture together, and I, I really hope you've enjoyed it. From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you... Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favourite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.